It's such a great honor, isn't it, to be able to assemble tonight in the name of the God of heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave His life for each of us. And yet as we give attention to His commandments, we look forward to living with Him for all eternity. As always, we're mindful and thankful for every single person that's assembled and gathered here tonight. And sure enough, our lesson will surround one word, Ebenezer. As Jonathan mentioned a moment ago, we just sang a song in which that word played a rather pivotal role in the second verse of it. And one of the things that you and I often seek to do, of course, is, as this next slide indicates, it thrills our heart when we're appreciative of and mindful of those words that we sing. We are commanded to sing with the Spirit and with the understanding in 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And just as surely as that's true... You and I just sang a song, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. It would be a fair question to ask, what is my Ebenezer and what's yours? We just made claim to raise it. Well, let's for the next few moments tonight, let's study about that word, its placement in that song, and the kind of message and lessons that in fact come along with it. As we do all of that, you'll notice you're at the bottom of that slide. On occasion, we run into circumstances in which a song may have been penned centuries ago. Sometimes a word will change its meaning over the course of time, but that isn't the case here. Here, a Bible word has been used, but maybe you and I will relearn some matters and appreciate some things as we revisit the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. So I hope you have your Bible still open there. Let's study on this next slide a bit about that song. And then we'll turn our study to the matter of that Old Testament book itself. You'll notice on that slide, I've given you a little information about that song you and I just sang together. O Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It was written by a gentleman named Robert Robinson in the year 1757. So 260 years ago that song was written. So it wasn't written just a few weeks ago or even a few years ago, a very long time by many standards. But as you can well tell, Mr. Robinson was in a bit of a very challenging family situation. As nearly as I'm able to tell, his father passed away while he himself, that is to say Robert, was still very young. And in those days, there was no welfare system. Robert was thus forced into heading it to work early on in his life in an attempt to earn enough to sustain the family. He fell into some rather unfortunate companions, and much evil began to be done by him and they. But as you can well tell, there came a time that he was motivated to make a change. A circumstance developed, and as a result of that change, he made determination to become a preacher. A person mindful of the grandeur and greatness of blessings he had experienced by virtue of the nature of that change in life. He wrote that song, as nearly as I'm able to tell, in the aftermath of that change. Note again some of the words that you just appreciated in it. Song number 500 again. We won't sing it again, but may I ask you to note the words of what we just sang, at least with that history in mind. It begins in verse number 1 like this. O thou fount of every blessing... Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me ever to adore thee. May I still thy goodness prove. 
while the hope of endless glory fills my heart with joy and love. Verse 2, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Never let me wander from thee. Never leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now as you and I just sang that, perhaps the history has afforded us a renewed vision of some of the things behind the author when he wrote it. But needless to say, as we've just sung that, verse 2 will be our focus at least for the next few moments. Here I raise by Ebenezer. So what again is an Ebenezer? The history takes us back to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. If you would revisit that text with me, we really will only look at a few brief passages in it. But the history is very scintillating and it's a remarkable thing. Could I revisit with you? beginning in chapter 4. The word Ebenezer only occurs three times in the Bible, and all of them are in this location. All of them are in this set of chapters about which we're to turn our attention tonight. The facts of the matter are these. The Philistines were, of course, enemies of Israel, and they were those with whom Israel had much to do in the book of 1 Samuel. Remember, the Philistines occupied that region to the west and south of where Israel occupied. And so they were always clashing, especially in that territory between the borderlands of those two regions. You'll notice on that slide, chapter 4 opens with this statement. I would invite you to notice verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. If you can picture the following scene, it's not a colored map, but it is this one. If you'll notice up near the top of that, there were two recognized locations. On the one hand was Aphek, and that's where the Philistines had encamped. And on the other hand was this little village, this little placement called Ebenezer, and there the children of Israel had encamped. The two were preparing to engage in battle. There was a little valley just between them, and sure enough, as these two were encamped there, remarkable battles were now to take place. You'll notice verse number 2 in that very same chapter goes on to say, And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. Israel on this occasion engaged in battle against the Philistines and it didn't go well for Israel. The Philistines had the upper hand. About 4,000 Israelite soldiers were slaughtered. You and I are accustomed to God's people winning in many cases because the God of heaven was with them and He in fact brought it about that way. But this time was different. God's people suffered defeat. You'll notice in verse 3 what the idea of the Israelites was. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? They were beset with wonderment. What has happened? Why hasn't God been with us? The verse closes with these unforgettable words. 
Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. The elders of Israel reasoned, I know what we'll do. Let's go to Shiloh and bring the ark of the covenant here. That'll surely guarantee God's presence with us. That will surely mandate that we will be victorious over these enemies, these Philistines. Let's go get the ark. And so they did. Verse 4 says, So the people said to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there in the, with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. Do you hear the eagerness and the fervor and the excitement? The people were just sure that this ark was going to guarantee victory. God's presence is now surely among us. The earth rang out with the excitement and with the shouts of the people of God. Verse 6, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of God was come into the camp. Remember, those two cities were very close together. When Israel sh shouted so, the, the Philistines heard all that tumult going on there in the Israelite camp. You'll notice that they then came to appreciate soon the ark of God has come into their camp. The next verse. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. <clears throat> Even the Philistines, aren't you impressed with what knowledge they had of the Ark of the Covenant? You and I so often think about Israelites and how that the Ark was the centerpiece of that, that tabernacle complex. But even the Philistines said this kind of thing hadn't happened before. That Ark is supposed to be in the tabernacle. They've brought it out to the place of battle. The next verse goes on to say this, Woe unto us! Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. Though the Philistines appreciated an unusual character to this, they nonetheless refortified themselves, mandating that they were in need to fight and not just merely give over these lands to the Israelites. Verse 10, And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel thirty thousand footmen. Even with that ark, they then engaged battle with the Philistines, but this time it was an even greater defeat than before. Before 4,000 Israelites were slaughtered, this time 30,000, but the worst is yet to come. Verse number 11, And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Those two that were the priests, the ones that were to take over in light of the coming death of Eli, they were slaughtered, and that precious treasure, the ark of God, was stolen. It was taken captive. Now remember, Israel had looked upon that ark. It was the very place that God promised to meet with them, and it was now taken. Oh, what a dark day it was in Israel. 
we've just read, it seems to me, one of the darkest days in all of Old Testament Israelite history. As you can see on that slide, if we revisit the previous slide and continue there, you might now ask, what happened in light of this ark being taken? The next two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, will detail some of the following matters. The Israelites, without the ark, not much information is given about them until we get to chapter 7. But in these intervening chapters, the Philistines come to realize this. While the ark is in their possession, things don't go well for them. Their men are afflicted with emeralds and tumors. There's a great deal of sickness and illness that comes to every camp, every city that has it. And so they pass it around. It's in Ekron a while, in Ashdod a while. They pass it around because everywhere it comes, things don't go well. They soon come to realize we've got to return this ark to the Israelites. It belongs to the God of heaven, and He's not happy and satisfied with it being with us, and so it is that they finally contrive a means of returning it. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it only stayed in Philistine territory seven months. They learned pretty quickly that wherever it was, it didn't go well. But after it was returned, it stayed 20 years in kirjath Jerem. That's when chapter 7 opens. For 20 long years, the people of God had not had enough interest in it to return it to the place of the tabernacle. Now that doesn't reflect very well on them. You'll notice as you and I come to chapter 7, the following scene develops. It's the scene that comes near the bottom of that slide. Verse number 1 reads like this, And the men of kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of God and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in kirjath Jerem, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods in Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. We could see the issue. Israel had turned their heart away from God. That's why they were defeated earlier. That's why the 30,000 were killed, because they weren't serving God. They had turned their attention to idolatry. They were serving Ashtaroth and the other gods that were known to the Philistine area. God wasn't going to be with them if they weren't serving Him. And now Samuel reminds them, putting before them the character of their mistake. He says, if you'll put away these false gods and turn your heart to serve God, He'll be with you and He will help you defeat the Philistines. Look at the next verse. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. That's one of the few cases in all the Bible where someone openly confesses, We have sinned. They didn't try to rationalize and cover it up. They didn't try to make excuse for their failures. We have sinned, they said. 
And so it was that Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that He will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering wholly unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day. And the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came to beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Now some of those scenes, as you and I close that slide, we have been ready to appreciate this. This reference to Ebenezer takes us to when the people turned their heart to serving God, when they left behind the idols and left behind the failures in service. Then God was with them. He thundered rather notably and scared the Philistines, and Israel had the upper hand. In fact, they pursued after the Philistines all the way to beth It is in that location, verse 12 now enters, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer. And he said, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Now putting all of that together, let's revisit the song. Let's think about it and some lessons that might be extracted from it. Very meaningful matters. I suppose we can see that Mr. Robinson, after the difficulties of his life, and those various pursuits that were often bad, when he made that remarkable change in the realization of turning to God, he was in a circumstance somewhat similar to Israel. Israel had made their mistakes and been idolaters, but when they changed and turned and pursued God, they understood God's help. Mr. Robinson seemingly felt that way as well. At that point in his life, all the badness behind him with his new direction and change to be a preacher of truth. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. I've raised my Ebenezer. You may notice this Ebenezer reminds us of the help of God. A few lessons will be ours as we continue in the lesson tonight. Applications that you and I might make to ourselves. Maybe we've never been in the exact place Mr. Robinson was. Maybe we've never been literally in the same place Israel was. But we too have some reason to think about an Ebenezer. And in fact, you and I just sang about it. Here I raised my Ebenezer. You and I promised that we had done it to God. May I say that word Ebenezer is a testimony to the help of God. Let's develop it like this. When you notice that word, literally what does the word Ebenezer mean? The word literally means stone of help. When Samuel erected that stone, it was a memorial of the fact that God has been with us to afford us victory over these Philistines, and we've enjoyed that victory due to His hand, His bountiful, beneficent, wonderful hand. 
you and I have raised our Ebenezers as well because it's only by the help of God that we've come to the way we are tonight. That's true of every one of us. It doesn't matter what station in life you may have occupied at some point. As a faithful Christian, you are what you are because of the help of God. Didn't Jesus say, without me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. Has He made that testimony to those apostles? I'm sure they had no idea what was going to fully befall them the next day and beyond. Their master was going to be killed by crucifixion. They were going to carry the load and burden of setting forth that new, ch that new church. Oh, how helpful. They were in need of recognizing God's assistance. Today, you and I know that we so much need His aid, His assistance, His help, and His direction. In fact, isn't it true that it is by the nature of God that we enjoy life itself? When Paul testified so abundantly in the city of Athens, isn't it true that it is of God that we each live and move and have our very being? You were blessed to open your eyes this morning, and so too was I because of the gift of God. Every day is a blessing for His. His mercies are new every morning, Lamentations 3.42. Isn't it true that every one of the appreciations concerning the physical blessings and latitude of life are due to Him? It is with that we might add Isaiah 42.5, even in the days of the Old Testament. Life as Israel knew it. And as the appreciations of people of that day, even they understood it was due to the gift of God. Could we not add the following? His goodness in every way. We noted earlier, did we not even this very evening, from James 1 verse 17, as you and I think about and appreciate that which God has to offer, isn't it true that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above? And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The goodness that Israel knew in victory over the Philistines then was due to the help of God. It was God who thundered. It was God who discomfited the Philistines. It was God who made that victory possible. And this stone of memorial was a reminder of that, of that truth. Your life and mine, we'd be remiss not to be constantly thankful in prayer to God for all that He has done and all that He promises to continue to do. Could we not add this verse as well? In Romans eleven twenty two, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Both avenues of God are so vital. On the one hand is goodness, and on the other hand is severity. You'll notice that as Christians, you and I have been the recipients by and large of His goodness, and we do not want the terror associated with His divine wrath. But that verse quickly tells us, but toward those that fail, toward those that are disobedient, they'll be the recipients of that, that wrath. As a faithful Christian, may we be always those who look upon the glass being half full, understanding how good God has been to us. Circumstances could be so much worse. Aren't you impressed with this last observation? In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul made this rather amazing statement. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He had been one who persecuted Christians. He had been one who had known the nature of religion, but it was false religion. It was untrue and unhealthy. And yet... 
when he came to realize on that road to Damascus that the one whom he thought was an imposter really was the Messiah. His life turned completely. By the grace of God, He has equipped me to be the minister of the gospel and to be a preacher of truth. The very one who in verity was referenced in 1 Timothy 2 verses 4 and 5. Paul understood in thanksgiving. He had raised his Ebenezer. That transformation had occurred in his life and to every one of you and I who have been baptized. Think of the transformation that occurred. You were dead in sin, but by the help of God you aren't any longer. You're alive in Christ. You are one who, in fact, has become a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. You indeed have raised your Ebenezer. As that has been raised, notice how it brings us to a second lesson. That Ebenezer did something else. It was a reminder to Israel that God had been with them and had seen them into a region of safety, protected from the onslaughts of the marauding enemy, the Philistines. They had chased the enemy away. You and I notice in the words of that song, again, verse number 2 reads it like this. Here I raised by Ebenezer, hither, to, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Safely to arrive at home. Every one of us as Christians hold very beautifully in heart the thought of looking forward to a heavenly home, safely to arrive at that place. With that development, you'll notice there has been a dramatic promise. You'll notice that when Israel put aside the falseness of life and turned only to God, God was with them, and He fortified them, strengthened them, and motivated them. You and I, of course, appreciate something very similar. Having given our life over to the Master, we serve Him faithfully powerfully, lovingly, and with motivation. And we do so in part because of this promise. This is the promise which He hath promised us, even everlasting, eternal life. To borrow the words of 1 John 2.25, God's made a promise. It's not an idle matter. It is not an issue of little significance. It is an eternal characteristic of promise. There is a place awaiting the faithful. We are motivated just like those ancient Israelites. This stone reminding us the stone of help has been erected and you and I see it in our life. Here I raise my Ebenezer. There's an assurance provided us in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven, waiting for you. You notice this place is reserved. It's reserved for those who are covered in the blood of Christ. As a Christian, you and I then can certainly proclaim with fidelity, yes, we've raised our Ebenezer. According to the help of God, I've been washed from my sins, and I'm promising with dedication to live in a faithful way. That Ebenezer reminds us of the destination to which we're journeying, that eternal place called heaven. One final passage. Wasn't it Jesus who used those thoughts to comfort His own disciples? Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Jesus testified to those apostles that night before He was to be crucified. And Ebenezer is being raised. Help of here because the Holy Spirit is the comforter and I'm promising Him to you. That Holy Spirit has come for all of us as well and provided us with these unmistakable words of inspiration. Surely as you and I think about that, one additional lesson. As you and I think about an Ebenezer, what a motivation is in it. Israel saw what happened when they turned to God and God was with them. The victory was theirs. And you'll notice the remaining story about the Ark of the Covenant. We left that a bit hanging earlier. After that 20-year period, ultimately it was David that would bring it back to the location there in, in the tabernacle complex. What a joyous day it was. What a day of celebration when that Ark returned to its rightful place. When you and I think about the happiness and the joy that comes in the life of a Christian, knowing what God has done, that Ebenezer having been raised, our development perhaps takes us to this direction. You and I are taught, told something rather dramatic in 2 Corinthians 5. In verses 14 and 15 of that chapter, the inspired apostle wrote these words, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Every one of us were dead. Dead in sins. Dead in iniquities, Isaiah 59, 2. Dead in separation from God. And yet the love of Christ constrains us because as we now appreciate what He has done for us, it's the least we can do to be faithful unto Him. We've raised our Ebenezer a constant reminder of God's ongoing help and the fact that we are in this location because of His blessing and goodness and that we profess throughout the remainder of our days to be faithful and loyal, dedicated and strong in our service to Him. You'll notice in addition to that, that faithfulness in living was not only an issue with which the ancient Israelites struggled. It could be an issue of great struggle and temptation for us. On this occasion, Israel turned their attention to God, but it's not going to be very many chapters when they'll fall again into idolatry. They'll fall again under the days of Ahab and Jezebel, and God again will have to punish them due to their failure and their turning from Him. You and I should see in this the following lesson. If we will attach to God and be faithful to Him, He will see us through. He will allow us to emerge through those challenges and difficulties and the worrisome problems of life. And we will emerge in a way that will allow us to see the blessed beauty of that stone of help, the Ebenezer that we've erected. Because didn't He say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? To quote Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. When Israel got into trouble is when they left God. He didn't leave them. And when you and I get into trouble, it's when we leave God. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. You'll notice among those verses, in Psalms 86, verse 12, 
David made a profession in the ancient day of his determined intent to be faithful, to be loyal, to always serve the God of heaven. And of course, you and I know that that's the key idea of Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. In the midst of those trials that the church in Smyrna was about to face, you're going to, in fact, have these difficulties ten days, but you be faithful until death, and I'll give you a crown of life. That should be a matter that buoys you and me upward and onward, so that we always realize we've raised our Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. Mr. Robinson, when he penned that song, had emerged through some bad decisions in life. May I say that some of us may have emerged from something like that, but now we're on a better road, a road that leads to everlasting glory. As we've studied those things tonight, let's close our lesson with a concluding slide. We've studied about this song, including the word Ebenezer. We've in fact not only sung that song tonight, but we've even given some thought to the words of it in this lesson. I hope the next time we sing it, whenever that may be, it'll be a constant reminder. Yes, I've raised my Ebenezer. By constant and faithful service to God, I shall arrive safely at home. He has seen us through so much, and He's promised to see us through whatever lay ahead. Tonight, if you're not a faithful Christian, do you see what you're missing? Do you see what it is that's lacking in your life? You're trying to go it alone. And you may, in fact, live here in the flesh, but your life won't be a full pleasurable one. And think of how the regretful and sorrowful will be your lot at the day of judgment when the Advocate of God will not be on your side. 1 John 2, verses 1 through 3. Tonight, if there's anyone in the audience and you can't affirmatively say, Yes, I've raised my Ebenezer. Why don't you make it so tonight by using the teaching of the Word of God? Come lovingly and hastily to His side. If you've never become a Christian, do it tonight. The words of the Scriptures plain, you've got to believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins and confess His name as the Son of God and be immersed. Upon that baptism, His blood will wash your sins away and you'll come forth cleansed and whole and clean. If you have begun that walk with Christ, you've known what it was like to appreciate the power in that stone of help, the Ebenezer. But maybe over the course of duration and time, you've begun to make poor decisions. You've become lax in your study of and your thoughts about Jesus. Why not tonight make a rededication? Allow us to pray to God for strength if that's what you need. Allow us to pray for your forgiveness if that's what you need. We'd be happy to do either one. This evening, if we could be of assistance and help in either of these ways, may we appreciate again the message of the Ebenezer and for all the goodness that comes with it. If you need to respond publicly tonight, won't you do it at once while together we stand and while we sing?